Welcome to Legal Aid of West Virginia's podcast. I am Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia. In this episode, we will be discussing how you can be a successful renter and limit some of the issues that we commonly see in housing law cases. We love to start our podcast with a disclaimer because that's what we lawyers do. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. This podcast is scheduled to be broadcast in September of 2022, and all information will be up to date as of that time. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the laws in the state of West Virginia and is provided for informational purposes. All our host and guest attorneys um, are advocates. This information is legal information, and it will not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation. As noted, I'm Clint Adams. I am your host for this uh, this podcast, and I'm joined today by Matt Jividen. Matt is our uh, advocacy manager in our Martinsburg office. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Hello, Clint. Pleased to be here. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Now, as I noted, you work in our Martinsburg office. What's something that's fun to do in Martinsburg? Oh, there's uh, so much fun to be had out here. Uh, I've actually lived all around West Virginia, and I've uh, and both the panhandles. West Virginia is the only state with two panhandles, as far as I know, and I've born and raised in the northern one. I live in the eastern one now. Um, There's a lot of great history in this state. Eastern Panhandle has uh, perhaps some of the best. Uh, Harpers Ferry is very close to me. uh, Lots of Civil War history. Uh, The Antietam Battlefield is very close as well. I like to go on the CNO Canal, ride my bike, or walk along the Appalachian Trail. There's a lot of beautiful nature out here, just like everywhere else in West Virginia. So today we're going to talk about housing law and about what uh, what you should know if you're starting your rental life or you're you're starting to rent an apartment. So let's kind of talk about that. Um, what what are some of the things that you think are most important that someone would know as they're prepared to enter into an agreement to to rent a property? One of the things that we that we found uh, in talking to hundreds and hundreds of clients is communication really is key. Uh, a lot of the problems that we see. You know that aren't related to you know inability to pay rent. And some of the ones that are related to the inability to pay rent uh, come down to communication. And I suppose what I mean by that is your landlord is a lot more likely to give you some slack if you're going to be a day late or even a week late with your rent. If you go and you say, "Hey, I have a little cash flow problem. Um, I'll pay you on the seventh instead of the first. You know, or if you have that open line of communication, you can get things fixed. You can you, know, you can negotiate. Um, troublesome spots. Usually the first question I'll ask when I talk to somebody when they have a, a problem with the landlord is, you know, what does your landlord say about this? Or have you talked to your landlord? I'm surprised how often the, the answer is no. Uh, and a lot of times uh, after that conversation, I, I'll ask them to go and have that conversation. Uh, the issues are resolved. This is a relationship that you build between you and your landlord. Well, how can a tenant um, take take the initiative and begin initiating successful communications between the them and their landlord well i mean number one is always having a way to contact your landlord it's amazing how many uh, leases you know property managers landlords owners etc don't really give the tenant any good way to contact them you know they have a lease that's 10 years old and it's got an old email address that nobody checks or it's got an old phone number on it um, start by having a way to contact your to contact your landlord um Make sure you contact your landlord with things your landlord needs to know, repairs that need to be made, 
And in my time, I've seen situations where landlords would be frustrated at a lack of communications. There may be something like a water leak or something like that. And, you know, I've talked with tenants that are afraid to report something like that to the landlord and in fear that the landlord will be upset with them. Um, but it also, by failing to report it, creates additional damage to the property that could have been resolved fairly easily had it been addressed sooner. Um, so I've seen that on both sides. Now, let's let's back up for a second. You used what's kind of a legal word earlier when you talked about a lease. What exactly do you mean and what does the law mean when it talks about a lease? Yeah, I guess it's a fancy way of saying a contract between a landlord and a tenant. That's going to outline your uh, obligations as a tenant and your rights as a tenant. Now, before we even get into that, I should say, right, there are a lot of people who rent uh, an apartment or a house without a lease at all. I've done it. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I but I have, as I suspect a lot of other people have. The difficulty of renting a place without a lease is you know, you don't necessarily know where your responsibilities end and where the landlord's duties start. So with something like a parking space, right? That in a good lease, it'll say whether you have parking, whether there's a fee for parking. If you got no lease, it's just kind of you kind of feel your way through. And if you ever have to go to court to try and enforce something right other than the conduct right what you've done i paid him 500 dollars and he let me stay here everything else is kind of up for interpretation in a written lease it's not a written lease will say you know so and so has is entitled to parking spot six and seven uh or so and so can have you know a a, a guest during you know these hours or these are quiet hours etc i mean the, the sort of rules that would be in a place uh, how much you're going to pay for repairs, if anything, um, any other obligations, pets, smoking, you know, all the kind of things that can cause little problems that can become big problems should be uh, in a lease. Uh, you know, I always recommend having a lease. The time to ask questions and negotiate is to uh, is before you sign a lease. Get a copy of it in advance, read it, ask questions before you sign it. And you can negotiate just like anything else. Your landlord may not be willing to negotiate, but you can always try. After you read it, after you're satisfied with everything that's in it, you should sign it and you should keep a copy, right? This is critical as well. A lot of people don't keep copies of their leases or get copies of their leases. If you're in a professional, semi-professional landlord's office, right, they'll probably run you off a copy and give it to you. They want you to have it. Uh, if not, I mean, even if you're in the, the hood of the car, the hood of the work truck situation at the at the sheets, right? You've, most of us have a camera phone in our pocket, right? Take a picture of it. Um, take a picture of it after they've signed it. And if you ever need to litigate it, which hopefully you never need to, right? You actually have a copy of it because you have to show up with the lease that's signed by the landlord or the owner uh, and able to, to be able to enforce it. Matt, are all tenancies governed by a lease? No. Um, there are lots of people who rent without a lease, right? So, um, without a written lease, at least I, sh I should say, if you don't have a lease, they're going to look at sort of general practice and, and past conduct. There are implied rules that are there no matter what a lease says or whether you have a lease at all. And the most important of those is the implied warranty of habitability, which uh, requires that a landlord deliver and maintain the dwelling in a safe and habitable condition. So when we talk about the warranty of habitability, does that mean that the landlord has to repair everything that might be uh, damaged? Or does that mean that only things as it relates to plumbing or electric or 
major um, infrastructure of the house has to be repaired? Oh, it's major infrastructure and safety issues. It's not the uh, ugly cabinets or the peeling wallpaper, right? It's 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 really the critical systems that need to be in place uh, and need to be working uh, as designed to make it safe, right? So a, a gaping hole in the roof is a health and safety issue that needs to be fixed. Lack of heat needs to be addressed. Electrical problems, running water, sanitary p- facilities, toilets, showers, those things need to work, right? There are things in your contract, like air conditioning, for example, that may be in a lease that says the landlord is going to maintain the, the, the HVAC system or the uh, the air conditioning. How do you advise tenants to tell their landlord? We've talked earlier about text messages, phone calls, certified letters. How is it that you would advise them to let their landlord know? Well, in the case of an emergency, I think quickest is best. Landlord, every landlord is going to be different. Some may want to get a text message. Some may want to get a written letter. Some may want to get an email. Um, and I think especially when it's an emergency, starting quickly and informally is is just fine. I think what you want to do eventually is follow that up with something and memorialize it. And what I mean by that is you want a record of that communication happening. A text message will do that. An email will do that. Um, a written letter with a copy uh, made and retained by you will do that because that's serving two functions. One is to let them know as soon as possible. The other one is to demonstrate when and how you you gave them notice of the issue. When we do litigate these, sometimes uh, an issue is the tenant can't demonstrate that they actually made the landlord aware of the problem, right? It doesn't have to be threatening. It'd be very nice. I'd like you to come out here and, and it doesn't have to cite any Latin or any any statutes or anything like that. Just a, hey, I've got this problem. It demands your attention. Let me know as soon as possible. Matt, let's talk about um, when we're talking about habitability, what happens if it's because your kid has been flushing 25 matchbox cars down the code? Does the, does the landlord have a duty to fix that? I think the landlord ultimately has a duty to, to fix that, right? And it's, it needs to be fixed, right? Your toilet doesn't work. I think under most cases, it would be reasonable for a landlord to ask you to pay for that. And I think that's the other thing. If you make, if you do cause a major problem, even if you do it, right, be prepared to pay for it. But you should usually call the landlord to address that. If you've caused the damage, expect that you're going to pay for it. And, and I know in this case you did and your child did. But anybody that lives in your house or anyone that's invited into your house that does damage to it, you are going to be on the hook for that. So if your cousin comes over and he, you know, falls through a door or something like that, you're going to end up paying for that because he's your guest and he's done he's done damage. So then you would have the remedy of suing your cousin if you chose to, to take that route after you paid the landlord. Is that is that correct? Sure. I mean, if you want your Thanksgiving dinners to be that much more awkward, you can <laughs> sue your cousin. Now, we talked about the importance of communication when we're dealing with uh, landlord-tenant situations. I think that it's probably most important to set that at the outset. So when someone's moving into a property, what steps would you advise someone to take? When you're moving into a property, right, first you should tour it, right, look at it, see it, and expect that what you see is what you get, right? A lot of the problems that we see are people who tour a place, there are no kitchen cabinets, there's no stove, right, there's there's painting that needs to be done, et cetera, and the landlord says, that's no problem, sign the lease today and I'll fix that. Expect that what you see is what you get when you, when you look at a place, right? Always go look at a place, ask questions, you know, flip on the heat, turn on the water, see that it all works, take a drink if you like. You're going to live there. Your family's going to be there. 
take your time going through there. Once you sign the lease and once you move in, I, I think or once you're ready to move in, I think one of the most important things to do is document the condition of the property. You know, document what's there and what's not. Take pictures, take video. You want to document any damage. Because ultimately what you want to do is get back your security deposit. Uh, and what you need to show is not that the place is in perfect condition. What you need to show is you didn't leave it any worse than you found it, except for normal wear and tear. So what you're doing is you're creating a baseline. And if there are large pieces of, of, of damage that you find or things that need to be addressed, contact your landlord immediately and, and let them know. I do that before I even moved uh, a single thing into the place because you're creating that baseline for, for uh, the condition of the property when you moved in. And I would say if you've moved in and forgot to take those pictures, you know, you may look back through family photos and you may have taken a picture of your children standing in front of certain walls or certain areas of the house. If you forgot to, to document at the outset, that's one of the things that I advise clients is to look through pictures that you may have that were taken inside of your house. Maybe a picture of your dog playing, but in the background, you can see there's no giant hole in the in the drywall, things of that nature. I've, I, I, I have, and I suspect you have spent a lot of time looking at old photos you know, looking for a water spot on the ceiling that existed, you know, back in 2014. You should do this before you move in, but if you don't, it's never too late. If, you, if you've been in place a month, go ahead and take the photographs. One of my favorite sayings is the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Let's say we've moved in, we've lived here, we've had a good time. Now we're going to relocate or we're going to move someplace else. We found a, another place that we like better. Our family situation has changed. What advice do you give clients whenever they move out? Well, let's go back to the running theme. That's communication, right? If it's time to go, even if it's at the end of a lease, you should tell your landlord that I plan to move out. And you should do that with as much time as you possibly can. Now, hopefully it, ha it happens at the end of a lease period. Obviously, you're still going to want to tell them, hey, you know, my lease is ending in November. I'll be, I'll be moving out, um, you know, at the, at the end of November. Um, I'll keep the place clean. You can, you can come and show it and find somebody else to come in there. Now, if you're ending it during a lease period, meaning you're in a year long lease, but you're six months in, obviously you've obligated yourself to pay rent and you give them as much lead time to fix that. So to do what in the legal business is called mitigate uh, their damages from your breach of contract. I got to interrupt you. When you use big fancy legal words like mitigate, we need to talk a little bit more about that. So someone's going to move out before their lease ends. What what do you mean by mitigate? You've signed a contract. We've covered that, right? You've got an obligation to pay rent on a monthly basis for a full year. And you're telling your landlord that you're not going to do that. Now, your landlord has a duty, uh, has a responsibility to go out and try to salvage what they can of that situation, right? They're not going to be getting rent for, from you for that last six months. They got to go find somebody who will pay them rent for that six month period that you said that you would. So oftentimes when you move into a place, a landlord's going to require you to pay a security deposit. Um, what's the purpose of the security deposit under the law? Purpose of the security deposit uh, is just what it sounds like. Um, it's to provide security. It's to provide security against damages, and it's to provide security against non-payment. If you do damage beyond normal wear and tear, you're going to lose a portion of that security deposit. Uh, and I should note that a security deposit is not the maximum amount you could be charged. The maximum amount is, you know, the sky is the limit. If you do $10,000 of damage with a $1,000 security deposit, your landlord's going to sue you for the other nine. When we talk about damage in the security deposit context, we're talking about damage beyond normal wear and tear. So normal wear and tear is if you live in a place for 10 years and the carpet's you know, are, are worn down. That's normal wear and tear, right? If you haven't spilled things all over them, burned them, done whatever, right? In 10 years, 
you know the lifespan of a of, of carpet is maybe approaching that or it's at least going to show some it's going to show its age not normal wear and tear would be riding your dirt bike around the living room breaking some windows right because that's not normal wear and tear where we will see issues sometimes is you know you live in a house for a year and it happens to be the 30th year you know of of the roof and the landlord needs to replace the roof so he says well i'm going to take that out of security deposit things like that shouldn't happen right because you didn't cause any damage to the roof beyond normal wear and tear you didn't do anything nature did that um or repainting right you shouldn't be taking out your security deposit to repaint unless you've done some sort of damage let's talk about that let's say you live in a place and the carpet's 10 years old when you move in you live there for a year you spill a little bit of bleach in a corner by the closet there um, and it damages the carpet clearly does the landlord get to bill you for the entire replacement of the new carpet Hopefully you've got a good relationship with the landlord. Hopefully you're able to communicate the issue. And uh, you know, and frankly, hopefully, hopefully it's not the first time the landlord has heard about it when they come in and see it. Right? You might want to prime them for that. Say, you know, there's a little bit of damage to the carpet. You can cut a square out of the carpet and replace it. The the damages probably extend only to what it takes to put that back to the condition that you got it in. That doesn't mean you recarpet a whole house. Frankly, even if the landlord decides to replace the entirety of the carpets, right, he probably should charge you for what it would have cost to only do the repair. So we talk about the, the idea being the best case scenario would be you walk through with the landlord at the end of your tenancy after you've removed all of your personal belongings so that everybody can see the entirety of the rental unit or if the landlord's too busy or lives in another community and 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 isn't willing to do that whether it's a landlord or a property manager they're not willing to walk through with you what can you do as a tenant to protect yourself well the you know this is the bookend for for what you did when you moved in you're going to photograph you're going to take a video you know you're going to show that you left it in a good condition you're going to clean it of course right you know you're going to clean you're going to clean the places that you never cleaned when you lived on top of the fridge the the well maybe i'm maybe i'm exposing myself a little bit here but the you know the 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 stove the oven the refrigerator you're going to get in the back of those drawers the refrigerator where that sticky something dripped down there you're going to clean all of that right you're going to photograph that you know and hopefully you're going to get your security deposit back Things that people often, you know, people often lose security deposits for the things we just talked about, just not doing a, a very thorough cleaning. They also lose security deposits because they leave uh, garbage, you know, bags of garbage or furniture or things in there. The other thing I should say with security deposits is don't anticipate you're going to get your security deposit back to use as your security deposit at your next place, right? A landlord has several weeks to get you that security deposit and make those deductions or make those repairs and do anything else. If you want to move, you got to find another security deposit and give it to the to the next place. So a tenant may have several months of rent that are just tied up in sort of these transactional things, right? But don't anticipate that at the end of that walkthrough, if you're lucky enough to have your landlord uh, come and do it with you, that he, that he or she's going to cut you a check, right? You're going to go take that to your next landlord because that's typically not how it works. Now, Matt, let's say you have a residential property, you're living there, and it gets sold during your tenancy. So you're dealing with one landlord, and now a new landlord owns the property. Where do you go to get your security deposit back, against the old landlord or against the new landlord? Well, under the statute, you would go to the new landlord to to recover your security deposit. That doesn't always go you know, incredibly smoothly. And 
what you ought to do whenever you get a new landlord or your property is sold, you should reach out to both of them and clarify some of these things, right? Establish a relationship and line of communication with the new one uh, and tidy up with the old one. That could include saying, hey, you know, have you transferred my security deposit over to the new owner? Um, is there anything else that you know that that we need to settle up here and, and move on? A lot of times that's easier, especially if you're going to be in a multi-year situation, than trying to go back five years and figure out where your security deposit is. Even though by statute, the new landlord should have it, the new owner should have it. Doesn't always work out that way. So we talk about getting your security deposit back. Can can a landlord just attribute that to any particular thing, or are there limitations on what a security deposit can be applied for? A security deposit, generally speaking, is going to cover damages and unpaid rent so you know it shouldn't be eaten up by by fees and 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 other things like that unless they're in the lease and it's clearly understood that being said there are a lot of we're starting to see more things like non-refundable fees like decoration fees or facility fees so when you look at a lease right see if those are in there because those can eat up a a lot especially if they say non-refundable right a non-refundable fee is something different than a security deposit Security deposit belongs to you, the tenant. A non-refundable fee is something that you're never going to see back no matter what you do. So read that lease and see where the fees pop up and see, you know, if the lease says they're going to use a security deposit for something, including, you know, something like repainting or redecorating. So let's say you didn't pay the light bill. Can the landlord bill you for that um, damages that they sustain by having to pay a, a light bill? I mean, I think it would depend on the lease, but if that's something that you are supposed to pay to the landlord and you leave without it being paid, um, expect that that's going to go fr- out of your security deposit into the to the light bill. Sure, I think that's actually provided for under the statute that um, the limitations or damages, as you mentioned, rent, unpaid utilities, and it, as you mentioned earlier, if a tenant has to have their belongings removed or stored, that a landlord can can bill that against the security deposit. But aside from that, under the statute, um, that's the only thing that security de- deposits can be applied for. Now, let's say you've moved out, you cleaned the place, the landlord walked through, said everything looks nice, you've completely removed all of your belongings, your utilities were current, there's no past due rent, you're moving out at the end of your tenancy, and the landlord still refuses to return your security deposit. What remedies do you, despite the fact that you may have requested him, what remedies do you have? Unfortunately, you're probably headed to, to court, to small claims court, to our magistrate court system, you know, where you're going to use your you know, hopefully your move-in photos and your move-out photos that show a, a, a condition is substantially the same, minus normal wear and tear, sometimes even better than when you moved in. Um, and you're going to ask for your security deposit to be returned, right? Most of it's, uh, you know, most most of what's done in those courts is by forms. You could go into the magistrate court, ask for the form, uh, and have your case heard and write down in plain English what you want. I I moved into this place. I took good care of it. I cleaned it. I cleaned the sticky stuff out of the back of the fridge. And the landlord didn't give me my security deposit back. I want it back. Under the statute, under the law in West Virginia, you're actually entitled to one and a half times the amount that's wrongfully withheld. So if your landlord wrongfully with, you know, willfully and wrongfully withholds a thousand dollars, you could be entitled to get that back plus uh, $1,500 for your annoyance and inconvenience. Two things I would follow up on there is there is a nominal fee to file an action in magistrate court. If you uh, cannot afford that fee, there is the provisions for a fee waiver form, and you can ask the magistrate court clerk about uh, applying for a fee waiver form and, and filling out that form in order to get that. Matt, so we talked about things that a landlord can withhold 
the security deposit for? What responsibilities does a landlord have as it relates to um, notifying a tenant if there are damages to the property? Well, a landlord has responsibility to keep records, right, and to, to hold on to your security deposit. At the end of a tenancy or even during a tenancy, there may be repairs that need to be done, and the landlord should keep track of that and, and either bill you for them or certainly at the end of a tenancy, take them out of your security deposit and inform you uh, why they've been taken out and, and how much. And at the end of a, of a rental period, a landlord has several weeks, it leaves you 45 or 60 days, depending on the circumstances, to either explain to you why they've taken your security deposit or a portion of it uh, and or return whatever the balance is. So it may be that some of that amount is not in dispute. If you have a $1,000 security deposit, you may not dispute that uh, $900 is going to be returned, but they may charge you 100 to throw away the old couch uh, that you left there. But yes, a good landlord should keep those records and, and should allow you to access those records and give them to you anytime there's a deduction from your security deposit. So we talked about 45 or 60 days, depending on the circumstances. What's kind of the determining factor in that in that case? Usually we wait up a few months for a landlord to return, two months usually before we would file suit. Uh, let the maximum amount of time pass. Uh, one issue that we do, just as sort of a point of clarification, one issue we often get is a, a tenant will leave without leaving a forwarding address. I've handled several cases where a landlord's been willing um, and, and trying in some cases to send back a security deposit, but they don't know where the tenant is and there hasn't been that communication. So leave a forwarding address. Um, and while I'm at it, right, forward your mail generally, right? Turn off your utilities. I think that's another important thing you've brought up because I've seen cases where uh, – Maybe you have a roommate, you may move out, and the roommate stays there, and then you've left the electric on in your name, and the roommate will run the bill up, and then it's going to be difficult for you to get electric reinstated, and certainly you're going to be liable to the utility if you don't cancel that. Have you seen cases like that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. All the time. Um, you know, roommates or ex-spouses or, you know, mom, it's got utilities in your name for some reason. That can cause a lot of problems. If you have a roommate, right, and your rent is $1,000. You owe $1,000, and so does your roommate, right? You don't owe $500, and they don't owe $500. You both together owe $1,000. If your roommate does damage to the property, you're on the hook for that too. So you could either sue the, the roommate then to get that money back, but ultimately you are, we call it in the law, jointly and severally liable. That's what you're saying without saying big fancy legal words. And I'm going to go ahead and say some big fancy legal words jointly and severally liable. That means that you are both liable for the entire amount. And if you have remedies, you can go back and sue the other person to, to get that if it's the if it's the roommate that's trashed the joint. That's right. Well and if they're not paying the rent, good luck um, suing them, right? You can you can win a piece of paper that says they owe you twenty five hundred dollars, but if they weren't paying the rent, they're probably not going to pay you. So whether it's in a security deposit setting or a setting where you're going to be suing a uh, maybe somebody who lived with you, like a roommate or something like that. What would that process be? You talked earlier about going to magistrate court. Is that where this would be handled? Well, if it's under $10,000, it's going to be handled in magistrate court. Right? Those are our small claims courts. Um, so, yeah, that that's where you would go. It's all pretty much driven by forms. You know, you go there, you ask for a complaint, which is the basically how you start a lawsuit. You say, give me a complaint form or give me a form. Right. They're available there. Um, Clint mentioned the, the fee waiver that you could file so you don't have to pay uh, filing or service fees. They're meant to be accessible, right? They're meant to be, they're meant to um, be understood and, and used by 
non-attorneys primarily. And a lot of times in landlord-tenant cases, if you're suing a landlord, they, they won't have an attorney. Sometimes they will, but often it'll just be the landlord that shows up. And you should be able to understand and plead your case in plain English. And at the end of the day, uh, if you've got the winning case, you get a judgment, which you then can go try to collect, right? So when you sue a landlord, maybe it's because they wrongfully evicted you and maybe you're entitled to damages for that. You may be able to sue the landlord for your temporary housing. You may be able to sue them for, for other costs, moving costs that you've incurred, things of that nature. You get that. We talk about that judgment, right? The magistrate says, you're right. Here's judgment. You're entitled to $2,000 from the landlord. What do you do with that fancy piece of paper? Well... You know, I, I wish I could tell you that the bailiff would just turn them upside down and shake all the loose change and money out of their pockets and give it to you, but that's just simply isn't how it works. You get a judgment. Some landlords will, will pretty quickly pay the judgment. They'll cut you a check, uh, but a lot won't. This is true of landlords or anyone that owes you money um, from a judgment. Sometimes you'll have to go and record that in the county records room as a lien on the property. You can try and you know uh, garnish bank accounts or... Uh, any income that they have. There are a lot of mechanisms um, to enforce that, but it's a, it's an additional step and it takes time. And, and in some cases, it may be that the person is judgment-proof, that they don't have any asset that you can very easily get to, which can be very, very frustrating. But it, it, it's a long game quite often, unless they pay voluntarily, um, satisfying that judgment, getting uh, all the money that, that that's owed to you. Now, there is an interest rate that's attached to it. It's a pretty good interest rate, um, you know, comparatively speaking. So that amount is growing as you try and collect it. Uh, but you know there are probably hundreds of millions of dollars of worthless judgments in West Virginia of all kinds that just will never be uh, will never be collected on. And I will say if you properly record the lien, you never know. I've had judgments that were four or five years old. I've received calls from someone who then wanted to transfer some property. And when the attorney does a title search, they say, wait a second, you've got a lien. So we've got to make sure we get that taken care of. And I've had clients that have been paid out for judgments that were well overdue um, as someone was trying to transfer property. Another thing that I've seen that I've used myself in the past is if you've paid by check, the landlord may have deposited that in a bank account. And that may tell you where they bank and what that account number is. And you can then uh, use that access and use that information to have the bank seize their property and transfer it to you by using the courts. That's um, right. Sometimes, though, this can be complicated. You might have to speak with an attorney about enforcing your judgment. You may or may not be able to, to enforce that judgment and to recover it. If you go in and you win in a magistrate court or in a circuit court for that matter, right? Don't expect that you're going to have that money instantaneously, right? Well, Matt, thank you for taking the time to join us um, today and to talk about these important issues of housing. I appreciate your time. Hey, it's my pleasure. Landlord-tenant law can be an important aspect of your life. Your ability to have and maintain safe and habitable housing is your right and is protected by West Virginia law. When dealing with your landlord, be honest and transparent in your communications. Maintain the property in overall good condition, and when there are problems, reach out to the property manager or the landlord. These relationships need not involve conflict, but should be approached with a problem-solving spirit. It is in both the tenant and the landlord's best interest to address issues quickly. More information on this topic is available on our website at LegalAWV.com. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.